So welcome to this healthcare ethics and law talk on consent and capacity within dentistry. Today we're going to be looking at the topics of consent and capacity and relating them to ethical and legal concepts as well and understand how these apply to dental practice. We're going to look at the terms individually, consent and capacity, the complexities associated with each one and we're also going to apply these in context in the form of dentally related examples and some legal cases as well. Um, we're going to highlight some issues that are relevant in the field and some contemporary issues that consent and capacity face today. So we're going to be looking at GDC outcomes A and D during this talk and we're looking at this Venn diagram which shows the intersection between ethics and law and in the previous two webinars we've been really focused on the ethical part of it. We're looking at the ethical principles that we use in dental and medical ethics. We also then looked in the second webinar at the four principles of biomedical ethics. But what we're really looking at today is more applied ethics. So we're going to be looking at a lot of legal cases. And again, as I mentioned, the intersection between the two is what we're really focusing on today. So we're going to look at how the ethical principles we've applied relate to everyday real life situations that we can take back to practice and implement immediately. So, as a lot of us probably know, consent has three elements. It has to be informed, voluntary, and the patient has to have capacity. So what I want to do during this webinar is go through each of those one by one and just look at some key cases, some key documents, legislation, and just understand a bit more about what each one of those means in practice. And so let's begin looking at the three elements of consent. We're going to spend a bit of time looking at the first element, which is the element of being informed. And this is really the million dollar question. How much information is enough information? How much do we need to tell the patient? I'm sure there's a varying degree in practice, but are there any elements that we have to inform the patient of? What are those? And, and how do we go about this process? So that's what we're really going to focus on in this section of the webinar. So from a legal perspective, if you look at the case of Ray C in 1993, which we'll look at in a bit, that really brought forward this idea of the patient needing to know the broad nature and purpose of the treatment. So what does it involve? Why are we doing it? The patient also needs to understand the relevant risks and benefits, and we're going to look at material risks uh, in a few moments when we look at Montgomery v. Lanarkshire. And the patient also needs to know some alternative treatment options. We can see a more comprehensive list of what the patient needs to know in GDC Standard 3.13. And it says things that patients might want to know include options for treatment, the risks and potential benefits of each one, why you think a particular treatment is necessary and appropriate in this situation, the consequences, risks and benefits of the treatment that you're proposing, what the prognosis might be, what your recommended option would be, the cost of the treatment, what might happen if it's not carried out, so what is the risk of not having the treatment that you're proposing, and whether it comes under a guarantee and for how long that applies. I want to dive into this case, Montgomery v. Lanarkshire, 
which took place in the UK Supreme Court in 2015. And I'll just give you a brief overview of this case, which you can look at in a bit more detail. There is a link on our website to the full case, which you can read through. But essentially it involves Nadine Montgomery, who had type 1 diabetes. And during her pregnancy, she was not warned of the risk to her child of shoulder dystocia during uh, birth. And she was not offered a C-section as an alternative to natural delivery, which ha would have avoided this risk. And her child was born with shoulder dystocia, and this resulted in them having learning difficulties. And so she claimed that she was not consented correctly, and that had she been given the option of having a C-section, if she had known the risk that was uh, present, she would have opted for the C-section and not a natural birth. So the court favoured Nadine Montgomery and claimed that she should have been told of the risks and of the alternative treatment options. And they also introduced the concept of a material risk. And so a material risk is one which a reasonable patient in the patient's position would likely attach significance to, or a risk that you as a clinician know or should know that the patient would have attached significance to. And so I just want to look at some key lessons from this case uh, and, and just look at through them one by one. So firstly, it really highlighted the importance of autonomy in the consent process. And this is something we've looked at in the previous two webinars. And, and as we know, we've moved from this paternalistic doctor knows best approach to one in which patient autonomy, patient choice really predominates. And that's a real tenant of medical ethics and dental ethics. And that shift's been going for the last 50 years. And this really highlighted that when we're talking about consent. And so the case showed that patients should be supported to make their own decisions. And that we have to help them make these decisions, but ultimately it's their decision. Another really interesting point is that risks cannot be reduced to percentages, and we have to consider them from the perspective of their significance to the patient. So what does that mean? Well, it means that even if there's a very low risk of something, or of, of this risk materialising, if we think it's significant to the patient, we have to then inform them of this. It also advocated a dialogue approach to consent, and this approach says that we have to discuss with our patients the choices that are available to them, and we may have to make sure they have all the information they need, but also answer any questions that they might have and answer them correctly and truthfully. And it highlighted that we can't simply bombard patients with information. We can't just simply give them all the information we think they need to know and think we've engaged within this dialogue that they need to have adequate consent. And equally, we can't just give them a consent form to sign and think that we've done the job. No, we need to discuss the options, the risks, the benefits, all of these things with the patient and have that partnership approach to consent, which is really important. And so we're going to briefly look at the second aspect of informed consent, and that's voluntariness. Was the decision voluntary? 
And so I'm not going to go into too much detail on this. We looked at that in the last webinar, the four principles of biomedical ethics, when we looked at autonomy and, and choice and consent. Um, but just a quick note, the decision of the patient must be free of coercion, manipulation and deceit. And that's a key aspect of autonomy, self-legislation, being able to make your own choice and, and have that free from influence. And that's really an important part of consent and we shouldn't uh, dismiss that too quickly uh, and, and something we should really be aware of. But as I say, you can find out more in the last webinar, which is on our website on the four principles of biomedical ethics, uh, in particular the autonomy section. There's also a podcast version of that, which you can go over and, and we looked at that in a bit more detail, looking at healthcare nudges as well, which was a really interesting debate. Let's move on to the third and final aspect of consent, which we're going to spend some time on now, and that's looking at capacity. And so does the patient have the capacity to make the decision? And so we're really going to focus on the Mental Capacity Act 2005, and the aim of this was to protect patient autonomy. As we've spoken about in a huge amount of detail over the last few lectures, we've moved away from this paternalistic approach. And so we're protecting patient autonomy and patient rights. And so in this case, we're protecting patients' right to make a decision, but also if a patient doesn't have capacity to make their decision, we're protecting their right to autonomy by looking at how we can promote them taking part in the decision of best interests. So the Mental Capacity Act is based on five principles, but I want to firstly highlight why is this an important topic? Why do I think this is really something we should spend a lot of time on? Well, by 2050, a third of the population in this country is going to be over the age of 60, we're going to see an increase in patients with cognitive impairments such as dementia, Alzheimer's, and this is potentially could affect their decision-making capacity. And so we as clinicians need to understand the Mental Capacity Act, its implications and its implementation within practice, because we're going to need to apply this in those cases. And research has shown that as clinicians, we're not always good at doing that. We often revert to a paternalistic approach, thinking about what's the clinical best interests. And, and partly our training has geared us up to thinking about clinical best interests, but we need to think about things more holistically. And we're going to look at that in more detail in the next part of the webinar. So the first principle really looks at protecting the patient's right to make their own decision. But we have to start from a position of, of presumption that the patient has capacity. So the first principle is a person must be assumed to have capacity unless it is established that they lack capacity. And that's so important. We should never assume or have a preconceived idea of whether a patient has capacity or not. And so that brings us to the second section, of, second principle rather of the act, a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision unless all practical steps to help them do so have been taken without success. And so that means that we have to try to support the patient to make their own decision and we really have to engage with this process. And the Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice is a really fantastic document. If you've not read, read it, it's really great to look at, um, particularly chapters two to five relate to the implementation of the act in practice and give us a lot more detail of 
how we can apply it to our everyday practicing lives. So definitely worth having a look at at some point. Uh, and there's a link of that to our a link to that on our website. And so just some quick um, key points that the code of practice mentions in chapter three in terms of supported decision making. Firstly, we have to provide the patient with all the relevant information, and that harks back to what we've looked at at the beginning of the lecture. What's the information they need to make an informed decision? We also need to communicate with the patient in an appropriate way. So we need to think about and reflect on how can we communicate effectively with the patient. So that may be involving unorthodox or unconventional methods of communication, such as showing the patient pictures of the treatment, and that might help them understand what's going on. And also think, is there anyone that can help us communicate with the patient? A carer, support worker, a family member who might be able to act as um, someone that can support both yourself and the patient in, in bridging that communication gap if one exists. We also want to make the patient feel at ease. Some patients are better at making decisions at different times of day. For example, the morning, they may be able to make decisions or perhaps later in the day. So you need to really think about that. Maybe specific locations, they feel more at ease. So these are all things to consider. And finally, you want to think are there any other ways in which you can support the patient, maybe having an appointed person that can help make that decision as well. And so let's look at a brief case study, it's just a made up example. Uh, a patient has a learning disability and are able to concentrate better in the morning. I have a carer who's able to communicate effectively with them and the patient responds well to pictures, which their carer says helps them understand things better. And so in this case, how can we support the patient and apply the things we've just looked at in chapter three of the Code of Practice? Well, we could firstly see the patient in the morning if they're able to concentrate better at that time. If the carer can communicate effectively, let's bring them into the equation and they can help us communicate with the patient. And if they respond well to pictures, why don't we get some pictures of the procedure that we're going to do and it'll help them understand Say, for example, we're doing a fissure sealant or a small occlusal filling. Get some pictures, show them what's going to happen. And it may just help them understand and make their own decision for this particular treatment. So the third principle is a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision. And this is really important. So we're going to look at this in, in the context of some cases in a moment. But I just want to introduce the two-stage capacity test. So how do we actually assess whether a patient has capacity? What are we looking at? And so the Mental Capacity Act advocates this two-stage capacity test. It has two limbs to it, two elements. The first part is the diagnostic test. and The second part is the functional test, which we'll look at each one in detail. So... The first aspect, the diagnostic test, it says that a patient lacks capacity in relation to a matter if at the material time they're unable to make a decision for themselves in relation to the matter because of an impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain. And so this impairment of the functioning of the mind or brain may be permanent or temporary and really important to note that we're just assessing capacity to make this particular decision at this particular time. So patients may be able to and have capacity to make some decisions, but not other decisions. So it's important to, to really consider 
whether the patient has capacity in this particular case. And so if we think there is an impairment of functioning mind or brain, we then move to the functional test, the second part of this test. And this looks at, do patients have this capacity to make a decision and what that involves? And it says that a, a person is unable to make a decision for themselves if they are unable to firstly understand the information relevant to the decision, secondly retain that information, thirdly use or weigh that information as part of the process of making the decision, and finally can they communicate this decision whether that means speaking, using sign language or any other methods of communication. And so if we have found that a patient lacks capacity, what do we do then? Well, the principle four and five, which we're going to look at now, they really relate to this. And so if a patient lacks capacity, a decision on the treatment or medication, so forth, must be made or done in their best interest. So this brings in best interest decisions, and we're going to spend a bit of time looking at that now and what they involve. So what are the key elements of best interest decisions? Well, we can see this checklist approach in section four of the Mental Capacity Act. It gives us a number of factors which we have to take into consideration when making best interest decisions. There, aren't, there isn't one factor which is more important than the other. They all should be taken into consideration to get a holistic, uh, informed picture of what the patient's best interest would be. And so we have to, again, not prejudice or bias this decision based on factors such as age or assumptions based on uh, patients' beliefs. We also, again, a really important aspect in part four or principle four of section four is that we have to reasonably take practical steps to permit and encourage patient participation. Even if they lack capacity, we need to still involve them in this decision-making process, and this is something we've seen uh, in increasing instances of uh, recently, there's been the cases of judges actually visiting the patients and finding it an enlightening experience. In the past, sometimes the patient wasn't heard from at all, and so how we can understand the patient's best interests, their point of view, without so much as seeing the patient, well, it's very difficult to do so. So judges increasingly are going to see the patients, admittedly not in a huge number of cases, but it's something that is being looked at and being implemented more and more, which is a fantastic thing. We also need to try and find out what the patient's past and present wishes and feelings are. And again, that involves looking at their present wishes and involving them, but also what were their past wishes? Are there any evidence of documents or anything that can help us understand that? And we need to try to put ourselves in the patient's shoes to find out what they would likely do in that situation. This may involve taking steps to discuss the issue with uh, named persons um, or people engaged with caring for the patient, their clinician, their carer, family members, a, person, a deputy appointed by the court, which is relatively rare, uh, or does the patient have a lasting power of attorney? And just a quick note on lasting power of attorneys. The patient may have one, but you have to make sure it's the right kind of lasting power of attorney. There's two types. The one we're interested in is health and welfare lasting power of attorney. They can make decisions on behalf of the patient, 
for medical dental treatment, life-saving treatment. But the other type of LPA, Lost and Proud Attorney, is a property and financial affairs attorney, and they can't make direct, uh, they can't consent directly for the patient on life-saving treatment. Uh, but you can, uh, you can, of course, consult them when making best interest decisions, and they may well know the patient's past present wishes, and that can be really helpful when we're trying to figure out what's in the patient's best interest. So we're going to look at a key case in best interest decisions. This is a relatively recent case from 2013, uh, which is a landmark case, and that's the case of Aintree v. James, 2013. And so... This involved Mr. James, a 68-year-old man who was in a minimally conscious state, and his medical team wanted to know whether they could legally withhold further treatment. They felt it was futile, and they went to the High Court and then the Supreme Court, and this really looked at the correct application of Section 4 of the Mental Capacity Act. The High Court said that treatment could be withheld, but they had the wrong application of the Act. It was too paternalistic and didn't really apply best interest decisions as it was meant to. So Lady Hale, who had worked on best interest decisions, really went into some detail on what they involved. And we're going to look at that briefly now. So again, it's looking at can the patient make a decision, uh, a particular decision at this particular time. And crucially, it doesn't just involve clinical best interests. It involves social and psychological interests. So we're looking at the patient's welfare in a very wide gaze and holistic sense and we have to try to put ourselves in the place of the patient and think what would their attitude towards treatment be, are there any significant factors they would attach a real relevance or importance to and, and what are those. And it does say that even though the patient may have a point of view or a wish or preference we can't always accommodate the patient and nor can we always ascertain what the patient's wishes would have been or would be at that moment. And when we're looking at best interest decisions, we always have to think what's the least restrictive option of the person's rights and freedom of, of action, and that's the final principle of the Act. So just to summarise and conclude, We've looked at consent, the three elements. Firstly, the patient has to be informed, and we've looked at what the elements are, and we've looked at the case of Montgomery v. Lanarkshire, which is an important case, and introduced material risks. Secondly, the decision has to be voluntary, it has to be the patient's own, free of any external influence or undue influence. And that's really important, and we looked at that a bit more in our previous webinar, which you can go back and look through the four principles of biomedical ethics and finally the patient has to have capacity to make their own decision and we've looked at the two-stage test we've looked at best interest decision and the principles of the mental capacity act and, and that's really important and we've also looked at the UNCRPED and some critique uh, and, and comparing and contrasting that with the mental capacity act 2005. So you can find out lots more about dental ethics 
and also the Mental Capacity Act of Consent on our website, healthcareethicsandlaw.co.uk. You can also go back and watch the previous webinars and webinars on other topics. We've got lots of other links um, to our podcasts and other interesting articles and research papers that you might like to go and look at. And so thank you for listening. That concludes our dental ethics series. I hope you found it interesting. And we look forward to welcoming you back in the future to our podcasts and webinars. And thank you again for listening and take care. All the best. Bye-bye.